0: Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing well. Very pleased to have the Harvard-educated Dr. Jason Richwine on the show. Now, Dr. Richwine wrote a PhD thesis some years ago under the tutelage partially of Dr. Charles Murray, who's also been on this show uh, to talk about ethnic differences in intelligence scores or intelligence testing scores. And uh, Dr. Richwine examined Hispanics coming into America and found, of course, the first generation scored relatively low. On intelligence tests relative to the people already living in America, of course, lots of reasons as to why that may be the case. Second generation did better than the first, but the third generation did not maintain the gains of the second. And so this makes a very, very big challenge towards the issues of immigration, multiculturalism, integration, and so on. Uh, it's a challenging thesis to me. I <laughs> push back against it intellectually, but uh, we do have to gird our loins and uh, screw our courage to the sticking place and follow the data where it leads. Otherwise, we are lost in a sea of propaganda. So we had a very enjoyable chat about uh, immigration, intelligence, ethnicity, and so on. And I'm very pleased to bring you Dr. Jason Richwine. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time today, Jason. We really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. So, a couple of years ago, of course, you you hit the spotlight, uh, and perhaps it could be said that the spotlight hit back, and um, in one of your, your, your dissertation, which I think you'd written four years previous to 2013, uh, under the tutelage of a number of, of course, prominent Harvard academics, including um, Dr. Charles Murray, who, of course, was also recently on the show, um, Well, you were talking about immigration and IQ. Uh, You just went through the eyes and found what were the most potentially flame broiled uh, controversies that the American public could try to stomach. And uh, as you said, it lay dormant for a couple of years. And then as a result of a heritage study, you gained some sort of uh, prominence. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the firestorm uh, and then we can talk about the contents of the thesis, which I would highly recommend uh, is well worth reading.
1: Sure, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that the two topics together were a bit of uh, a controversy. And, you know, it's interesting, I'm not the kind of person who sets out to create controversy, but I think sometimes what happens is the issues that are most interesting also happen to be the most controversial. They say, you know, in a PhD program that you should always pick a topic that you're interested in, but, you know, beyond all else, you know, no matter what else you're thinking about or contemplating, pick something you find interesting, because you're stuck with that topic for years, you know, at least three years, sometimes more. And so that's really the only reason, you know, when it comes down to it, that I got into the topic as a a dissertation topic. But then, of course, obviously there are some uh, some major implications for public policy that are important to discuss. When it comes to the firestorm itself, I mean, you're right. It's something that was, uh, I guess, uh, um, you know, sort of on the back burner for years, and then when we came out with a completely unrelated report on immigration for the Heritage Foundation, there were a lot of people lining up against that report. It, uh, the people who were for this bill, the bill in Congress at the time, was mainly an amnesty for the illegal immigrants who were currently in the country. Uh, there a lot of different interest groups lining up for that bill, and they realized that the Heritage Foundation was really the only major organization that was going to stand in their way. And so what happened was, even before we came out with that report for Heritage, it was already being attacked. So it's remarkable how that worked. And, of course, the discovery of of, uh, my dissertation was just perfect for that group of people. I say discovery, even though it's not really the right word, because it was never a secret to anyone. I've spoken quite openly about uh, these topics throughout all the years I've been in Washington, D.C., since graduation as well but uh, i just i really underestimated the extent to which people would try to use that as a way of you know, implying that i was some kind of secret racist or some other kind of horrible person but i guess that's just the way politics works these days and you know we can we can talk more i guess about uh, how these witch hunts have really infected the way we talk about policy and how we can we can hopefully you know, turn a corner on that and start being able to have some more open conversations.
0: Well, I mean, it it sort of reminds me, you're going way back in the day, you know, the sort of Copernican revolution, the heliocentric model of the solar system, that that did challenge some special interests, to put it mildly, at the time. And there was that kind of persecution. And if you look back, of course, to Hernstein In the 70s to Rushton to uh, two people, uh, of course, uh, Murray and Herrnstein in the 90s, there seems to be this repetition where any question of ethnicity and intelligence, it erupts. Everyone is like freaking out completely as if they've never heard it before. Although within the consensus, my understanding is the consensus within the technical discipline is fairly clear and then it vanishes. And then a few years later, it comes up again as if it's never happened before. And that's the same shock and appalling and witch hunt and all this kind of stuff. And then it vanishes again. And we're sort of kind of in a lull at the moment, I think, although you could argue that Donald Trump's candidacy might drag this stuff to the forefront again because, of course, he's talking about immigration so consistently. But there's this weird repetition with the same thing that people to, to pretend to be shocked every single time.
1: That's exactly right. Exactly one of, of my major concerns as well. I wrote about this in an article for Political called Why Can't We Talk About IQ? If there's anyone out there listening who really, really wants to read the one thing, uh, you know, the one good article I wrote, um, or I should say the best article I wrote in response to all this, that would be it for Politico. But yes, you're right. It's, it's, it's uh, something that I think a lot of people just don't want to believe. I can understand it to some degree that there's a feeling among the people unfamiliar with the technical literature, but are nonetheless intellectual in a sense, I'm talking about journalists or scholars in other fields, who are naturally uncomfortable with the idea of intractable differences. And I'm not even talking about between groups, even just among individuals. The idea that some people are funnier than other people, or some people are smarter than other people, some people are more athletic than others, that is difficult for people to accept because we would really love to think that just hard work is enough to generate accomplishment, but really it's not. You know, you have to have hard work and a lot of, of innate ability to do the kinds of things that people would like to do, and because that's difficult for people to contemplate, it doesn't fit well into their worldview, they tend to just forget about it. It's, it's a very common thing where if you see evidence pointing in a direction you don't like, it's very easy to just kind of put that aside and not remember it until the next time someone brings it up. And as you said, uh, you know, my situation was similar in many ways to uh, past little outbursts of debate about IQ, which then uh, sort of go away for a while, and then they come out again, and people are upset about it again. And I tried to make this point a lot in that political article and also in a lot of the other writing that I did in response is that people are getting upset about things that are not even a matter of controversy in the, the, the actual field of psychology. The idea that uh, IQ is, a, is a, a, a number that can estimate general cognitive ability, that's not controversial. The idea that this IQ test is something that can predict uh, future income and socioeconomic status, again, not controversial. The idea that these tests are not biased against various socioeconomic groups, again, not controversial. But all of these things just sort of repeatedly come up among people who are not familiar with that literature.
0: Yeah, and uh, so, so the general hierarchy, uh, you know, correct me where I go astray as a fairly competent amateur, but the hierarchy as far as I understand it from decades, and I guess in, in some places close to a century, of, um, uh, of IQ testing is that uh, the, the Ashkenazi Jews are, are at the top uh, and then there is the East Asians uh, and then there are the Caucasians or so the whites and then Hispanics and then blacks. Is that fairly close to the ranking that has remained fairly stable for a while?
1: That's pretty stable in terms of average IQ scores for those various ethnic groups. It's something that hasn't changed all that much although of course the magnitude of the differences have changed over time. But yes, I mean, so that's something that uh, I touched on in my dissertation. Although group differences was not the main part of my dissertation, certainly you have to discuss it in any in any long form piece about IQ. It's certainly important, and and I think also you know those group differences are something that that people should think about from time to time, as as indicating that you know people are different, groups you know groups of people are different, and the idea that. Any time there's any kind of socioeconomic disparity between identifiable groups no matter how you're doing the identification whether it's even by ethnicity or even sexual orientation or any kind of other uh, identif- identifiable group uh, delineator you know the assumption that that must be due to the predations of the majority group or some kind of discrimination is quite wrong, and then we need to sort of disabuse ourselves of that notion and begin to think a little bit more maturely, I would say about why differences exist in society because at, at, at bottom you know people are different and Different people have different kinds of abilities, and and those abilities are going to express themselves in different ways throughout society. And I think we could have a, a much more peaceful and cooperative society, in fact, if we just relaxed a little about these outcome differences and accepted the fact that some of these things are just going to be natural.
0: Right. And I also want to insert the, the general caveats when we start talking about a group or ethnic differences in intelligence that you can never prejudge any individual by these characteristics. Of course, right? You, you, an IQ of 130, no matter where it's coming from or what body type it happens to be in, is an IQ of 130 and will probably gain the income uh, that is associated with that. So you can't judge any individual ahead of time based upon these group characteristics. However, when you zoom back to a wide enough sample set, you will see trends begin to emerge. And because policy, public policy, is about very wide sample sets, countrywide sample sets, uh, it is important to bring these distinctions in, not when you're sitting across from someone uh, in the subway, but when you are looking at public policy questions, you are looking at huge sample sets. And if you don't have this particular lens to look at it through, everything seems kind of blurry and, and highly conflict-ridden when in some ways it's not.
1: That's exactly right, and I, I would I would agree with everything you just said. It's uh, when you're talking about individuals. I mean, of course, you, you know, we always want to judge individuals based on who they are as themselves. The idea that we would resort to, you know, a, a group average about that person, you know, you don't have to do that if you have enough information about them to know who they are as, as, as people. And so when I when I talk about the importance for public policy of uh, group differences, which is you know one part, not of course the whole study of IQ by any means, but it's one part of it, that you, it's really only from that top-down uh, perspective when you say, okay, we seem to see these, these differences emerging. It doesn't really matter what country you're in or what state or even what school district, these differences seem to be emerging. And do we want to always blame that on some kind of social disparity, or do we want to begin thinking about that as something that's just natural for... Uh, what happens when you have different groups of people living together? And I know that a lot of people listening are probably going to say, "Well, that's that's so pessimistic. You know, that's that's so uh, bleak an assessment." But I, I strongly disagree. I think that, as I said, the the key to living peacefully together. Because, after all, the United States is a very diverse nation, and that's not going to change. So, the key to living peacefully together is beginning to just accept those differences, treating people as individuals, and not immediately blaming one group when another group does not do as well.
0: Well, and that, of course, is a challenge. And, and I'm, you know, I grew up in a very sort of multicultural positive environment, and, and I'm still very much behind that ideal But it is never profitable to reject empirical data and empirical reality. Oh, I guess politically it might be profitable in the short run. But as far as social cohesion and actually getting along, it's kind of uh, it's it's a very negative thing to kind of reject this information, because I think that there is a lot of sensitivity and and rightly so. So if you say, okay, there are these different group differences, these ethnic differences in general intelligence in in, uh, on average. Then people say, well, okay, but then the people who may come up a little bit short, uh, on average, are going to be very upset. And of course, I think everyone's sensitive to that, of course, right? But the reality is, if these differences are real, and again, the data seems to show that they are, someone's going to get upset. Someone's going to have to get upset. Because if we say everyone's equal, then only group disparities will be blamed on white racism, in which case we have everyone and their dog screaming racism at white people, which is not that much fun for white people. So someone's going to get upset. And I just rather uh, we, we go with the data rather than what's politically correct.
1: Yeah, I hope that, that people ultimately would not be upset by it and just sort of learn to you know em, embrace the diversity of, of the world. You know, and, and this is a sense where diversity, I think, is, is something that we we have to accept. And that that I would also point out that uh, you know certainly there there are some indicators like intelligence where you would say well just, yeah I would like to be more intelligent rather than less. But there's also a lot of personality traits where it's not even clear what is necessarily good or bad. You wouldn't line up. Uh, you know, say, um, aggressiveness necessarily on a good, bad uh, a continuum because, you know, there's some combinations can work better than others. And so when you're talking about the vast set of personality characteristics that we might measure or at least be able to think about, you know, to, to be able to say, well, gee, this one set is good and this one set is bad, I don't think of it that way. I think of sometimes as just low versus high in, in various types of personality traits and so once we accept that that is going to, you know, those differences exist and that IQ is but one part of that larger set of differences, you know, I don't think anyone should really be upset about that. I, You know, sometimes it's easier to think about this outside the context of the uh, very fraught history between whites and blacks in the United States and think maybe more about the difference between, say, East Asians and white Americans, where... You know, very few people are going to blame Asian Asian Americans for their greater average socioeconomic success compared to white Americans. It's something that uh that, that Asians are tend to be very good at, they tend to be very good at academics. It's a stereotype, of course, but uh, stereotypes oftentimes are just an expression of, of an, average, uh, an average characteristic of a group. And so there really is not that much tension between whites and Asians in America, uh, despite the fact we have these socioeconomic differences. And it's my dream, and you know, maybe it's just a dream, an idealistic dream, that maybe all group differences could be treated just like the white-Asian difference in America someday.
0: Right. No, I, I, I certainly think we can, we can hope for that. So let's, if you can, we want to dig in a little bit before we get to your um, focus on, on um, Hispanics and immigration. Just for the audience who's not that familiar, and sadly, it does seem to be quite a lot of people that we have a pretty intelligent audience. Uh, so if, I wonder if you could just break down IQ and in particular the g substrata of the IQ testing because a lot of people think, well, you know, there's EQ and there's a whole bunch of multifacets to intelligence and so on. But that does seem to see sort of like if if these different testings of the planets, there is a sun around which they orbit, which seems to be very consistent. I wonder if you could help people understand that a little bit.
1: Sure. I mean, it it goes back to uh, Spearman, sort of the first psychometrician back in the early 20th century, who noted something that, you know, maybe in retrospect was kind of obvious, and that is that if you give people... A big battery of tests, you know, 10, 12 different tests, all of which test mental ability to some extent, but but are seemingly very different in their content. Maybe you have a vocabulary test, and then maybe you have a math test, and then maybe you have a test where you have to uh, rotate three-dimensional objects in your mind, then maybe you have something about um, musical ability and so on. You have all those different tests, and what Spearman found is that that scores on those tests were fairly highly correlated, so that if you had a really good vocabulary, you also were pretty good at doing algebra, and you were also pretty good at rotating three-dimensional objects. Of course, the correlation wasn't perfect by any means, but it was high enough that he thought there was something else going on there. And what he found was that you can, using factor analysis, which is a mathematical process to sort of isolate Uh, the the factors that most explain the variance in these tests, he found that there's something that he called G, the general uh, mental ability factor, which underlied uh, a majority of the variance on on these tests. And that's basically the birth of the IQ test, the attempt to measure G using a full-scale IQ score. And the more tests you have, the more subtests you have of different types of content, the better you you can estimate that, G. And so, as I said, that uh, really kind of took off as a psychological tool. And certainly, I think it's important to emphasize that uh, no one should be an IQ determinist in the sense that if you have a certain IQ score, then you know, we know exactly what your life is going to be like. It's not, not, not even close. There's so many other factors as well. But nevertheless, it is a pretty good predictor. Uh, you know, on average, of explaining a decent amount of variance in things like income and occupational status, and also a number of uh, behavioral outcomes. So, you know, that your likelihood of going on welfare or ending up in prison is also related to that IQ score. And so that that's really the basis of it. And there have been a number of challenges to that model uh, for many years. And you know, probably one of the most common you've heard is the, the notion of multiple intelligences. Now, it's important to, to note that, that when we talk about G, G doesn't explain everything. It, all, it doesn't explain all the variance on mental tests. It just explains a lot of it. So there, are, there is room for these other factors, for sure. Maybe there's a more specific factor for, for math ability compared to verbal and so on. And so th- there is room for that, but only in what you might call a hierarchy of abilities with G at the top. The the attempts to to turn G into just one of many different mental abilities have really not received much empirical support. The uh, person most associated with the idea of multiple intelligences is Howard Gardner, uh, a very smart man and someone who's done a lot of interesting work, but I think even he would be one of the first people to admit that there's not a lot of psychometric backing for the idea that G can be split into different types of skills, because when you try to do that, you, know, you keep coming back to, to G itself as really the, uh, explaining, as the top factor explaining so many other things. So that, that's where the, the, uh, the research has been for a while now, as I said, not, not extremely controversial. Um, most psychologists certainly accept the, the G model of, of IQ, and really most of the debate now about IQ research has moved on from that topic
0: okay, good, so so there is a general sort of horsepower within the brain that shows up, and, and we're not saying everyone has the same abilities, you know I think, as you mentioned in your in your thesis that um, everybody knows a literary buff who's terrified at the sight of a math book and, <laughs> and vice versa, but in general uh, the the intelligence factor that is common to all of these tests is um, basically a measure of raw processing power or speed of the brain, does it also not tend to show up in things as non-culturally sensitive as reaction times? Has it not also been validated by MRI scans showing brain complexity and even by brain size? Like there's a, it's more than just the test. It also correlates, if I understand this correctly, widely with another, a number of other uh, physical measures.
1: That's right, and that, that's a burgeoning topic. It's uh, kind of combining neurology and biology with psychology. It's a really exciting area, actually, and and uh, I I kind of wish I could uh, I could get into that. Although I wish I don't have a neurological training to, to be able to do it, uh, but yes, I mean so increasingly we're finding that that uh, if you you know give people IQ tests, you find that uh, you can see certain parts of the brain lighting up, you know, on on the most g-loaded tests. There seems to be a correlation between uh, the amount of white matter uh, in, in the brain uh, and and your ability to perform well on the most g-loaded g-loaded meaning most the, the the items that require the most uh, the highest iq to be able to do appropriately so uh, yeah there's lots of interesting research like that and even the genetic research is is becoming somewhat more sophisticated although to be honest i think that it's still in its early stages a lot of people have were hoping that there might be some gene or, or simple set of genes that could be identified that that dictated, you know, what your general cognitive ability would be. And I think increasingly it's becoming clear that it is likely uh, a, a very, very complicated set of gene interactions that's really contributing to that. And so the... The quest to find you know the gene for G has not gone so well, but there have been certain gene combinations you know that people have found have been at least related to it, although not even close to explaining everything about it so this is a, a, a an interesting field I think there 's a lot more that's going to be coming out within the next you know decade or so, and it could have some really interesting implications for uh, for public policy and, and the way we see our society going forward
0: yeah, I would assume that the um... The complex, uh, the, the complexity of the gene interactions would have to be significant, otherwise it wouldn't be much of a bell curve, right? I mean, th- because, you know, switching things on and off, if it was just one big binary switch, you, you'd get sort of an on and off for intelligence rather That's than a bell top curve top, yeah. that we see. Right, right. So... I guess the next question is um, one of the things I think that's confusing to people about uh, intelligence uh, and which they don't usually understand is, A, the degree to which it tends to diverge among groups later in life, and B, the degree to which within each particular individual's testing history, there is an astonishing amount of stability in intelligence uh, over the course of life. I wonder if you could break those down a little as well.
1: Yeah, there's just an interesting new paper on that that I think it brought some, some newer data to the question of stability over a lifetime. And it really is remarkable how stable they are uh, from early adulthood to sort of uh, early uh early retirement age, you might say. I mean, the, the correlation between an IQ test you take when you're at age 20 and, and versus at age 60 is quite high. Uh, correcting for measurement error, I've seen it somewhere in the area of 0.9, which, I mean, is actually surprising even to me. I, thought, I didn't think it would be that high. So, yeah, th- these are pretty stable scores. And that's not to say that people don't have changes throughout their lives. I mean, maybe they were sick the day they took the test or something like that. So, you know, I, I, there's probably a lot of people listening saying, hey, I got this score this one time, and then I got this other score that other time. Uh, you know, certainly there is individual variation, but it is pretty stable. Um, but uh, before late adolescence, it's less stable. And especially in the very early stages of life, you know, you're not going to be able to give a test to a two-year-old and, and you know, be very confident about that score remaining stable moving forward. So uh, that, that's something that, that uh, everyone needs to understand, especially parents who, you know, there's a lot of parents out there who, who deny they're interested in the topic at all, but then as soon as they have a child, they immediately want to know what the IQ is, you know. Uh, it's not something you're going to be able to figure out immediately. It's, it's you know, just be patient and you'll, uh, you'll quickly learn um, uh, just, you know, how much your children take to academic skills and, and such throughout their lives.
0: And what are the rebuttals against those who say that uh, there is a cultural bias that excludes certain groups from doing well, or there may be internal standards or internal cultural standards or uh, a rising or I guess a lowering to stereotypes, say, for blacks or Hispanics who test lower on the IQs as a whole? Uh, what, what are the rebuttals to, to the arguments that it is a, a subjective measure that is affected not by anything physical, but by ideas within the mind or resistances within the environment or something like
1: well, that? there is a uh, a huge literature on test measurement. And a a lot of times, people who level the accusation that tests are biased because they're written by white men, supposedly, and so on, I I don't think are actually aware of the fact that this is something people have been thinking about for 100 years. And so, you know, even leaving race aside, if you think about, you know, our test bias against the poor versus the rich or something like that, uh, there's a very vast literature on that. And, And just to Sort of give you a couple points on that. W- one of the most basic measures of test validity is to correlate the test score with some other measure that would be supposedly related to it. So, if you're thinking maybe about SAT scores, that's oftentimes correlated with the uh, GPA in a, in your freshman year of college. So you might you might ask, okay, if uh, say if if the SAT is biased against the poor, then um, maybe the correlation between um, your SAT score and your first-year grade would be different for the rich and the poor. But in fact, it's not, or at least not significantly so. And in fact, if anything, the SAT tends to overpredict the first-year GPA for poor students, which means, if anything, it's actually biased in favor of of uh, the, the poor group. So that's one way of, of of looking at it. There's also a number of different ways of looking at what might be called an internal validity of a test. And to do that, you can look at the individual items on a test and correlate those with your overall score. And, and so you can try to find certain items that may not be acting in the same way they do for different groups. So maybe, maybe for men maybe a, a particular item that men find easy, women find really hard, and the difference is greater than the, than the overall difference on the test, then you might say, okay, well, that item maybe is biased, you know, against women. And, again, it's important to understand that these sorts of things are tested for. You know, this is uh, one of the reasons why the SAT has the experimental section, you know, the part of, your, of the test that doesn't count, but they use for further research and for, for future test items, where they can, you know, you can remove those types of items if they're causing problems, and, and you can get to a point where you, you find that all the items are functioning basically the same way for all the different groups that are involved. So I would just say that, you know, for people who are, who are uh, sure that, that cognitive tests are biased, I, I want them to at least acknowledge that there is a huge literature out there that is expressly aimed at uh, removing bias from these tests. And to really continue to assert that bias exists, you'd have to uh, come up with a number of sort of convoluted stories to explain why both the external validity, in terms of predicting other outcomes, and also the internal validity seem so strong.
0: Right. Now, as far as what is desirable, Within a society. And of course, you know, we're not these these giant monsters who can make societies at will. So we're just talking about what is preferable as a whole. I think it's fairly safe to say, uh, of course, can contradict me where I go astray. But I think it's fairly safe to say that high IQ is better. I mean, we, we try not to think of IQ uh, as directly associated with moral standards. I mean, there's a certain amount of determinism Then when you start to shave down the numbers. But as far as I understand it, when the studies are done, people who have higher IQs tend to be more law-abiding, tend to tell the truth more, tend to be more economically productive, uh, tend to stay out of trouble uh, more, uh, tend to uh, just be, be better neighbors. As a whole, higher IQ for a society is preferable if you have the choice.
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue with that. I mean, and as I said, I mean, just if, if on an individual level, if you know, if someone said, "Would you like to be smarter?" I, you know, most people are going to say, "Yeah,
0: well, I would like to be smarter." Sure. I mean, I'd like to go right up to the crazy envelope. I like, suppose. Maybe. I'd like to be just yeah. like I want to. I want to fly as fast as I can before the airplane breaks up. Right. It, I want to <laughs> be as smart as I can before I go insane. You know, take me to the insane level and then take it back a half a point, and I'll be great. Right, <laughs> well,
1: I don't know that might be a bit extreme. I I, I have thought. About this before because you know I've I've heard people you know it's one of those dorm room conversations that college kids have you know it's like well you know w- you know how many IQ points would you give up to be you know two inches taller you know it's a question that I, I have difficulty uh, you know even contemplating really uh, but uh, you know I, I, I sometimes I worry that when you're talking about mental abilities all that sort of factors into your personality. And so if someone said, would you like to have five more IQ points? I'd say, sure. But, you know, if someone's, you know suggested making a radical change, you know, if someone wants to, you know, make me Stephen Hawking, you know, I, I'm not sure actually, just because I wonder if I would continue to be myself after that. I know this is probably getting overly philosophical for you, but
0: uh, that's, that, Oh, no, no. I I mean, it's the Aristotelian question of essence, right? How much of yourself can you change until you're no longer yourself? And I think IQ is definitely one of those things, because um, IQ, to my degree, is sort of like being able to see a little bit further over the horizon. Uh, and so there are benefits to having a high IQ for sure. On the other hand, you are tortured by things that most people don't even know exist. <laughs> so there is, you know, there's a balance, that true. as you no, know. That's
1: right? true. You know, and actually, the, you know, the relationship between IQ and suicide, you know, is a positive one. You know, the people who are most likely to commit suicide are East Asian countries. So um, you don't necessarily, you don't have to have a high IQ to be happy by any means. And, and uh, sometimes, as you said, having a high IQ can can make you depressed about things you otherwise wouldn't be depressed about. So you know, these are complicated things. And I think most people, regardless of where they stand on any of these personality traits, uh, can can live very satisfying lives and I don't think should ever be envious because, as I said, I mean, all this goes into who you are. I mean, you know, to think of it another way, imagine someone said, well, would you like your sense of humor to be raised by 10%? And again, well, I, I think a sense of humor is a good thing. But are, how much are you changing me if you're doing that? So uh, you know, I, I'm okay with me. You know, I'm I'm not perfect, but I like me, and I think most people have the same kind of, of feeling about themselves. And so, uh, you know, I think the best thing to do for that is just to relax and be who you are.
0: And and I think it's important to recognize too. I know we're wending a little bit into philosophy territory, but that's what this shows about. I don't have no problem with that. But you know it's sort of to me it's like um a like massive athletic ability right I mean I, don't, I do not have massive athletic ability, but I'm glad that there are people who do so I can watch it on TV. Uh, I don't have a beautiful singing voice, but I'm glad that there are people who do so I can listen to great music. You know? So the fact that you may not have a particular ability should, I think, enhance your appreciation of it. You know, I, I am not a genius at inventing vaccines, but I'm very glad that there are people uh, who did, so I made it to 40 without coughing up a lung and expiring in a mud swamp somewhere. So, you know, the fact that other people have significantly greater abilities than you is something that makes you uh, enjoy the spectacle of life. Uh, and, of course, maybe you feel jealous or envious. You know, we've all gone through that from time to time. But the reality is that, that the, uh, the fact that other people have massive abilities that we, all of us don't have to some degree is, is what makes life such a wonderful spectacle. I think that's right.
1: And I, and I think there's also a, a point to be made about people remaining humble about their own abilities uh, by, you know, by, by seeing real genius. You know, and and so I think it, it it's particularly important. I think for you know gifted kids especially who sometimes go through school for a while, you know, not being challenged, and they think they're on top of the world. And it's always good for them to you know to hit their wall at some point, and they they begin, they they realize you know, hey, you know, I'm not. I'm not really such hot stuff, and I need to be a little bit more humble and a little bit more circumspect about, you know, the way I see the world because there's a lot to learn, and there's a lot of people out there who have a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, you know, I can sort of give my own uh, personal take on that. When I, when I went to graduate school, um, I, I met some people who, uh, are, are not merely smarter than me, but are on a different plane altogether. And I, it was at first a little, a little disturbing, but then I came to just appreciate it, as you said, and it, it helped me to realize, you know, that uh, I, there's a lot for me to learn out there, and and there's always someone who you know can teach you something interesting
0: oh you can 't be great unless you have someone to beat i mean I, the, the runners know that right they get people to run with them when they want to break a uh, a record just so that they have someone that they can compete with in fact, they get runners to some new runners show up who are fresh to, to make anyway so we okay so let 's get uh, to um, i guess some of the more thorny stuff around these implications. Uh, so my understanding of the data as a whole is that if blacks in america if African Americans have in aggregate an average IQ of 85, and they make less money and have fewer assets, say, than Asians, right? We'll try and take out the usual black-white hysteria and so on, right? So if blacks have, on average, a lower IQ than Asians, then blacks are not being paid less because they're black, because if you take any group that has an average IQ of 85— then that group would make as much as blacks on average. And if you, it's not that Asians are being paid more because they're Asians. It's that if you take any group that has an average IQ of, say, what a 104, 105, 106, however it's calculated, then they would make as much as Asians. In other words, what we're looking at is uh, income or assets by IQ category rather than by race category.
1: When you do that, I mean, a lot of those differences are either shrink or disappear. And I, I do think it's an, something important to do. There was a paper, I guess it's back in the 1990s, uh, an, an economics paper that uh, looked at that by actually using the same data set that was used in the bell curve by Hernstein and Murray. And what they looked at is uh, a measure of labor market discrimination against, against blacks um, But by first controlling for AFQT, the Armed Forces Qualification Test, which was the uh, IQ test used in the bell curve, and what they found is is that um, if you controlled only for education uh, in the in these. Uh, these equations predicting income, Uh, what you find is that there's a big difference. So uh, you take a black person and a white person of the same years of education, you'll find the white person makes considerably more money. But then when you add that AFQT variable in, it really shrinks that difference a lot. And I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that uh, black women actually were seen to make more money than than white women when uh, AFQT was controlled. I, I don't think that the difference was completely Eliminated among men, but but shrunk considerably, and so that's an important thing to keep in mind from a, a labor econ perspective, which is that years of education can mean a lot, the very different things to certain people, and so if you're able to graduate from high school, say in you know one of those famously uh, you know not so challenging inner city schools then that's not exactly the same qualification as graduating from high school in some kind of uh, suburban school with uh, very high-achieving parents and students and so on. And so, yes, uh, you know, when, once you have that IQ control... It does make a considerable difference, and I've tried to use that in some of my own work, uh, sort of completely unrelated to ethnicity, but uh, just when you're comparing groups of people like, say, public sector workers and private sector workers, you know, how does that make a difference? Because it sometimes does. So, yeah, something definitely to keep in mind.
0: Well, and this, of course, is not to deny or minimize or obfuscate the significant racial barriers that blacks and and other groups within America have faced and and in other countries as well. It's just a factor that is often uh, forgotten. And, of course, when it goes the other way, uh, we are curious about it. I mean, I just I was supposed to interview uh, the guy who wrote the book uh, Taboo, Why Black Athletes Dominate Sports and Why We're Afraid to Talk About It. And um, we couldn't yesterday. Skype was down. But uh, his book makes the argument that uh, if you look at sort of middle distance running, then those people who come from a very small area of Kenya, the blacks who come from completely dominate the sport to, to the point where like no one else is even bothering to go into that. And this arouses curiosity. We say, well, gosh, wonder why that is. And they've done a number of tests and measures, you know, fast-firing muscle mass and and propensity to gain fat or not. And and we're curious about it, right? Because what's being measured in the middle distance isn't whether you're black or white, but how fast you can run. And if there is a group that happens to run faster, I think we should be curious about why that is. Because if it's genetic, uh, then—and, of course, we'll get to that in a few minutes. There's a big contentious issue— But if it is genetic, that's important to know so other people don't try to reproduce their success if they don't have the genes. Uh, And if it's not genetic, then maybe there's some way of transferring that skill or expertise to other people. But either way, we really need to find it out. Wherever we see excellence in any area, wouldn't we want to investigate its cause uh, in order to try and disseminate it as widely as humanly possible?
1: You know, I'm I'm someone who always is interested in explaining the things around me. You know, I, I sometimes I'm sort of surprised that there are people who don't want to know about these kinds of things. I find it absolutely fascinating, and, and I, I unlike some people, I don't fear the consequences. I think that any you know uh, self-respecting democracy should be able to deal responsibly and maturely with these issues. Uh, without uh, sinking into, uh, you know, accusations of, uh, you know, horrible bigotry and so on, and unfortunately, I think sometimes we do sink into those things, and I, I've had some personal experience with that. But I don't think we have to, and I think it's uh, something that is very interesting. I also say that your example illustrates that to, to think of this in black and white terms—I mean, that in terms of the ethnic groups—is uh, uh, you know, perhaps uh, too broad a, stro- a, a brush to look at these, because there are a number of. Interesting Interesting intra-racial differences that are that are out there, especially in Europe. I mean, the, you know, the idea that. Uh uh, most people don't consider Italians and Germans to be identical in the way they act and behave and achieve and so on, even though they're both within the broader term of, of white that we use. So, lots of really interesting differences here. I, I look forward to more people investigating and and discussing them because not only are they interesting from uh, just the perspective of trying to explain the world, but they have some uh, they could hold some important lessons for for public policy.
0: Well, and I think that uh, your earlier point, Jason, about um, trying to find ways to reduce the hysteria and tensions between ethnic groups is really important. I mean, there are some amazingly fantastic, incredibly tall Chinese basketball players. Uh, On the whole, though, Chinese people are less tall than, say, blacks or, or whites. And so if we looked at the paucity of Chinese basketball players and then kept screaming racism At all of the owners of the basketball teams or perhaps the audience of the basketball matches and just kept screaming anti-Chinese racist prejudice at them. That would create a lot of tension (laughs) that really couldn't be solved. And so uh, this recognizing, okay, well, there are disparities between particular groups that are going to suit them to different things. And again, this says nothing about any individual. We're just talking about the sort of zoom out big picture perspective. But if we were not to, um, to recognize any of these dis- discrepancies and accept that the market is reflecting to some degree these discrepancies, the only thing we kind of have left is this hysterical charge of racism and this massive amount of unbelievably expensive and, if it's wrong, destructive social engineering, you know, for, from everything to like uh, forcing banks to lend money to people, to, to affirmative action, to like we, we have this giant god-awful socialist engineering project that is shoving around massive amounts of, of, of human and, and fixed capital around society to try and change something that uh, may not be as amenable to change as we hope. And, and so, to me, the stakes actually are, are very high when it comes to this stuff.
1: Yeah, I think you're hitting on a, a, a sort of a, a, a bigger issue that I think is important to bring up. And, you know, that, that's um, what's happened to the left you know, within the last half century or so is that, you know, it, it's so much of it is tied up in social engineering, as you said, that that that's really probably one of the roots of all the hysteria that's going on. Because when when people suggest that uh, differences are intractable, you know, whether it's a genetic or even just cultural or something that's you know beyond our, our ability to really impact much through a government program, then that puts a whole you know sort of edifice of bureaucrats and activists and scholars and so on kind of out of work because so much of that is built up around that idea one of the big issues these days in the US is uh, public preschool and there is really not a lot of good evidence that public preschool is a good investment for society because so much of what it's aimed at doing you know increasing incomes and uh, you know increasing the sort of non cognitive outcomes and so on it is, is difficult for us to affect in, in really any way, uh, whether it's uh, cultural or economic or, or or otherwise. And so, that's something that people don't want to hear. If you know, if, if you're a big advocate of public preschool, if you're a scholar who deals with that, or you're a, uh, a, a bureaucrat who is supposed to be designing these programs, you don't want the.
0: Or a union member who wants to expand union Uh, contributions. If if it's
1: government preschool, right, as opposed to something else, then you don't want to hear that these are differences that are are difficult to impossible to affect. That's not what you want to hear. And and unfortunately, the left has gotten away from uh, a a more responsible view of human nature, because although I myself am on the right, I I, I wouldn't have necessarily say that, a, that a, a proper view of human nature necessarily requires that we be conservatives. I mean, if you go back to say, you know, Rawls, uh, you know, I think he was pretty clear about the idea that uh, um, people have natural differences. And you know, his point was, you know, if, if you didn't know what you would be like, you know, in terms of your genetic endowment and everything else, you know, wouldn't you want some kind of uh, redistributive state to be there for you as sort of an uh, insurance against, you know, Getting in the wrong end of the bell curve. Um, now, I'm not someone who's a very big fan of roles, but you can see there that that, that is at least a, a proper interpretation of human nature, which is okay, there are these differences here. Yeah, they exist.
0: Well, yeah, because, but I mean, I think everyone recognizes there are in more intelligent people and less intelligent people. It's just that there is this. Alarm bells. These alarm bells that go off in people's heads when we talk about ethnicity, and and I, you know, one of the arguments that uh, I've got a video called "The Truth About Immigration," where I sort of make the case that um, a, a lot of the the heavy socialist, progressive, and even the communists back in the day uh, wanted to destabilize the free market by um, uh, minimizing group differences and therefore ascribing. Every inequity among different demographics to prejudice uh, on the part of the dominant group, of course, in America that happens to be uh, whites as a whole. Uh, It was a a method of uh, simply attacking a system because, of course, when socialism failed in the Soviet Union and Cuba and, uh, and, and Cambodia and everywhere else it was tried, they couldn't do a positive game of saying, well, look how great socialism is. And of course, if you can't win a match, then you poison your opponent, so to speak. And I think that's part of the less, I don't, not conscious plan from everyone, although certainly Saul Alinsky and others have made it pretty explicit, that the goal is to bring down the free market by ascribing all group inequities to prejudice, which creates a massive incentive uh, to scream at uh, everyone who's got any kind of authority and also to, um, uh, to engineer, to make massive amounts of, of uh, redistributionist engineering control policies that, of course, then further destabilize the market. But anyway, I know that's a pretty long topic for another time, and you may not agree with all of that, but that's, as far as I understand it, part of the mechanism of of why it's so attractive to the left.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I actually had not thought of it exactly that way before, but, I mean, it it makes sense, at least to the extent that I'm uh, reacting to it now. Um, Yeah, I I think, um, as I said, I mean, in terms of political debates, I really wish that both sides would acknowledge you know differences in human nature and i think we could have more productive debates that way and i'd also say that that in, in my view our main goal here should be not you know, how can we eliminate inequality, but, but how do we find a valued place for everyone regardless of ability? Because as I said, you know, there, there, there are these natural bell curves out there. The, our, our attempts to change that fact have not gotten us very far. And so to me, we want to say, okay, hey, we, we know we have this natural distribution here. But how, how do we make sure that everyone, regardless of that ability, you know, finds a place, leaves a satisfactory... Uh, enjoyable life that uh, you know, is not going to be so affected by uh, the results of the genetic lottery. And someone on the left might say, "Well, that requires a lot of redistribution." Uh, I, I don't personally agree. I, I think where we really need to emphasize is the civil society aspect of of uh, of America, and sort of trying to revitalize and strengthen civil institutions where like churches and, uh, and, and and non-religious sort of groups, including the family and, and extended family of friends and such that will give people that kind of desired place, you know, give people a sense of belonging and importance, even if they don't necessarily have a particular genetic endowment. you know, that's going to allow them to be, say, university professors.
0: Now, I know we've taken a long circuitous route to appreciate your patience uh, to, to the topic of immigration, which is where this uh, started. But um, what, what troubles me, and again, I, I bring this up out of genuine alarm <laughs> rather than any particular knowledge, which is why it's good to have an expert to talk about this with, is my, my big concern with immigration is um, I'm certainly willing to accept that people who come from, um, uh, in general, lower IQ demographics are above the mean smarter smarter people right great fantastic right but the, the part of your research that troubled me um is the degree to which that does not seem to sustain itself over generations and the analogy which i inexpertly assembled in my head is uh, again to sort of go back to the the tall chinese people so if you say had an open audition for a bunch of um uh, Chinese basketball uh, basketball players from China you get a whole bunch of tall Chinese people coming over right but then the regression to the mean seems to indicate that tall people have children who are taller than average but not as tall as they are and and so on and shorter people have children who are taller than they are uh, but uh, not as tall uh, as, as the average and, and so on and so this regression to the mean that if there is genetics involved uh, and or even if it's so cultural that it might as well be genetic uh, in other words if if the culture is so encapsulated that it functions as a transmission of intelligence in a very similar way to genetics. And again, I'm not particularly interested in the genetics versus environment debate um, for two reasons. One, let's just wait for the answers because, as you say, they're plowing through the genome and hopefully finding some some answers fairly soon. And secondly, it doesn't hugely matter because let's say we find one or the other. And this is a, a Murray perspective, of course, uh, what would we do differently we we like so to me the, the genetics versus environment isn't particularly important but i think the data that you've uncovered or the data that you propagated in your thesis is the degree to which there does seem to be a drop off uh, among immigrants hispanic immigrants over generations which does not point towards integration with uh, an intellectually challenging society. Is, is that a fair way to characterize it? I don't want to put words in your mouth, of course.
1: I'd say that's fair. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess actually slightly different issues, really. I guess regression toward the mean uh, that you brought up, that, that's what gives me confidence that my kids will be uh, better athletes than myself and uh, better at music than myself <laughs> uh, because, you know, statistically, it's pretty hard to go any lower. Now, um,
0: my daughter has a lot of hair, I will okay. tell you that. <laughs>
1: No, uh, yeah. So that that's certainly one thing, and there's some evidence that you know different groups sort of seem to regress toward different means. Uh, but uh, I think with the intergenerational assimilation, a uh, little bit of a different issue. In that, um, what we do see is that the second generation of immigrants typically does a lot better than the first, and and that should not be too surprising because you have people being born in the United States, educated in the United States, speaking good English, usually for the most part. And so
0: we would certainly expect, and probably getting a better education. Sorry, getting a better education, having a more stimulating environment, more television, more books, whatever.
1: Yeah, I would think so. And so that second generation does go further than their parents, uh, considerably further. But the question is, where do they go from there, And, and that's one of the things I looked at, and some other people have looked at as well. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of progress beyond the second generation for a lot of the low-skill immigrants who have been coming in for the last uh, half century or so in, in the U.S. And so that, that's, that's definitely a cause for concern, and it's something that a lot of people, I think, don't really think enough about, because the the nightmare scenario, I would say, you know, sort of the worst-case worst scenario here, is that U.S. ends up something like Brazil? You know, Brazil has a very wide uh, range of incomes. There's a lot of income inequality, and you know you can you can see pictures of. Uh, of, of Brazilian cities, where you know you have this extremely rich you know, sort of downtown area, and then you see they have these you know, favelas. I'm probably not saying that with the proper accent, but you know, these, these, these basically shanty towns, uh, you know, outside the cities. You know, extremes of poverty, you know, one of the, the biggest extremes in the world, and those kinds of inequalities are sort of tinged by skin color in a sense. That the lighter-skinned people tend to be richer. Darker skinned people tend to be poor in these countries. And that is something I don't think the U.S. wants to go down. I mean, we, we of course, had this traditional white-black difference. But uh, beyond that, we tend to have been more egalitarian. And to, to move further into that kind of society, I think is what a lot of people don't want. Now, don't get me wrong. We're still far, far from Brazil. But if we continue immigration as it's constituted now, especially as we're beginning to... Uh, have immigrants from Central America, people who uh, are more of the uh, uh, Amerindian descent as opposed to Spanish descent, I think you'll begin to see an even stronger kind of skin color uh, and, and economic gradient there that uh, is, is, I think makes a lot of people uncomfortable and is probably not the kind of society we want to have.
0: Right. And so the the argument against that, which, which I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard it as well, is that uh, going back to 100 years ago or 120 years ago, uh, similar concerns were raised about the Irish or the Italians or the Catholics. So there's a circle of inclusion that we have within society that uh, if you weren't from this area in England, you were, you were out of the map, man. You just were not allowed to be part of the, the general conception of society. And that sort of expands to, to accommodate more uh, and more groups. Uh, but um, uh, if there is, you know, genetics involved in intelligence and group differences and so on, then those kinds of prejudices, which were explicitly cultural and explicitly religious, uh, would tend to fall away over time. But if there are group differences that are not amenable to a general convergence of culture, then you are going to end up with these different, uh, uh, different groups within society. And, and this is what's so uh, alarming to me is that because we don't have an answer about this and 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 even more frustratingly, because those who are in hot pursuit of the answer regularly get the arrows of the media in their back tipped with a general socialist poison we, we we are making massive decisions throughout the west ma- massive decisions about immigration without the necessary facts to know whether it 's going to work or not and uh, that to me is like let 's say we 're ten years sorry for the rant, let 's say we 're ten years away from from figuring out the degree to which uh, um, uh, intelligence differences among ethnicities is 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 uh, biological is, is genetic and let's say that the the worst fears are realized uh, of those who are staunch egalitarians and we've got 80 percent genetic inheritance and nobody even knows what the other 20 percent is you know this non-shared environment who knows what it is right Mana from heaven uh, who knows right so if we've got 80 percent heritability in terms of intelligence and it's unevenly distributed among various ethnic groups we have a society that cannot integrate, that's going to balkanize, its, and particularly with the war of all against all, with everyone trying to grab control of the, the state to, to enforce its views on others, we are setting ourselves up for a literally apocalyptic disaster uh, in the West. Until So for me, it's like, maybe we could just hold off on the immigration and, and give m- a lot of money to geneticists <laughs> or something like that to, to, to see if we can figure, because this is a huge question. To be answered, and until it's answered, to me, to continue to progress with what we're doing uh, is, is reckless in a way that I, I don't even have the language to encapsulate.
1: And, and what happens to the uh, American ideal, the American dream, the idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if it becomes so obvious that that's not something that, ha- that has come true for the most recent immigrant groups, I, I think that, that's a real problem. You know, the idea, you know, I'm not really a big advocate of the idea of American exceptionalism. Some them I think people are, are people to you know, uh, there's nothing special about our, our land but uh i, I will say that th- that has been a uh a, a common view among a lot of Americans that uh, you know you pull yourself up you start from nothing and you you make something of yourself and that i is true to some degree among previous waves of immigrants. I think some of that has been a little bit exaggerated, but certainly you had a lot of immigrants from Europe who came, uh, who were low-skill, and then their children and grandchildren entered the middle class in large numbers. When that doesn't happen for new immigrant groups, that's going to be, I think, as you said, pretty difficult for a lot of people to understand. And I think that the natural inclination for a lot of people is to say that there's something wrong with our society or that, that That that's a problem by itself, but um, that that uh, that future is 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 one that we we don't have to have, or at least one that we could minimize the problems with. I think a more more reasonable look at immigration.
0: Right, right. Well. I don't know if I, because, again, I don't have any answers. And, and, and the challenge is, of course, that nobody does at, at this point in time. But uh, we are proceeding as if we have answers because we, we, we proceed in general. I sort of look at the disasters of, of the 20th century and, and into the 21st century. It's a, a massive big picture view from orbit. But it seems a, a lot of it has to do with change the environment, change the person. Uh, you know, we, we can just we, we go and invade Iraq. We give them democracy. And next thing you know, you know, it's uh, Manhattan. And this idea that, that change the environment, change the person, the idea that uh, give money to poor people and they'll be just like middle class people. Uh, and this really is, is, has taken a lot of blows empirically over the last few decades. But it still seems to be like this religion that everyone gravitates back towards. Like, well, the only reason that, uh, uh, that, that kids in the ghetto do poorly is because their parents don't have enough money. So we give them more money and they'll do fine. Uh, The idea that – or that crime is the result of poverty. The idea that poverty may be a result of crime or the degree to which low IQ nations are positively correlated with things like uh, corruption and uh, sometimes slow or even negative economic growth and and just general disasters all around. The idea that there may be this giant lever called IQ uh, that may have some inherited basis uh, is something that is of such foundational importance to the maintenance of civilization uh, that – I just uh, I feel like we've just got this brick on the gas and we're blindfolded and we're trying to navigate uh, without enough information. And uh, whenever you say, you know, let's slow down and let's try and review the data, um, everybody just erupts in, in this panic. Uh, that seems to me um, a very dangerous place for I don't know overly dramatic, but it seems to me like a very dangerous place for society to be because, you know, these decisions are, are impossible to reverse.
1: Yeah, I would say that, you know, we we ignore human nature at our peril, and we don't seem to be you know, heeding those lessons. I you mean, know, foreign policy is is not my uh, not my area, but certainly I mean, when you brought that up, I mean the the, the, the idea that uh, you, know, you can impose democracy and that these ethnic groups with centuries-long uh, disputes between them, themselves that they're suddenly going to work together and be people who want to participate in a liberal democracy. Uh, yeah, a lot of these things are fantasies. A lot of them are. And the the more we begin to take a realistic perspective on, on society and on human nature, I think in the long term, the better we'll be. It, it's not a, a utopian vision at all, certainly not, but it is one that promises, in my opinion at least, uh, a, a more peaceful and cooperative society uh, because we were acknowledging differences and working with them, uh, keep, keeping human nature in mind when we make policies, not trying to circumvent it and that will hopefully uh, lead us to a better place. But uh, for now, we definitely have an uphill battle.
0: Yeah. Oh, it is, of course, the goal, I think, of all rational empirical thinkers to have idealism crash and, dis- and, and destroy itself on the rocks of data because uh, idealism and the avoidance of data is uh, a truly a dangerous thing, I think, as the 20th century has repeatedly proved. Well, Jason, I want to take up more of your time, though I'm, I feel like a chat all day, but um, I wonder if you could just let people know where on the web They can uh, get uh, your information, and you've also uh, written some fantastic blog posts, and of course, you're available in in magazines and uh, other websites uh, across the web. Where's the best place to go to to get all that is straight Richwine? I
1: keep an archive of all my writing at www.jasonrichwine.com. You can find all my published work there. I also uh, blog regularly for national review, so you just want to go to the NR website, you can certainly uh, find a lot of my stuff coming up there on a regular basis.
0: And your daily chaos uh, articles will be coming out? Uh, never. They will never be coming
1: no, out. No, you know, I, I, I wrote one for Think Progress, actually. You know, it was, uh, it was a response to something really? uh, in the middle of the fire. or so wrote just after it, they had done a big article on me. And uh, I think, you know, to their credit, they they published my response fully. And so uh, you can also find that link to my website if you're, if you're curious about that.
0: Uh, well, good for you for slipping one past the goalie. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks very much for your time. It, it was a real pleasure. And, uh, of course, I wish you the very, very best with your future intellectual endeavors. And, uh, you know, the fact that you weathered the storm is, is of no small um, – I have no small admiration for the way in which you weathered the storm. And, and uh, congratulations on, on uh, your new work.
1: Well, I appreciate that very much. And I, I appreciate the time uh, that we talked.
0: Thanks so much. bye